Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, in 2002, um, Rick Warren famously uh, published his international, now best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. And uh, it, to date, has sold over 50 million copies. I'm cheap, so I um, sprung for just the, the little uh, Notes version of it here. Um, as the title would suggest, Warren argues in it, that we've been put here on earth by God for a purpose, that our lives are filled with meaning, and that includes uh, how we spend our time. So he says our time here on earth might be just the blink of an eye, but the consequences of it will last forever. That includes the work that we do. Quote, as long as you do things for God, you are a hall of famer in heaven's list. And most importantly, it includes life's ultimate chief end and aim. He says, if you feel hopeless, hold on. Wonderful changes are going to happen in your life as you begin to live it on purpose. Well, three chapters now into the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon isn't nearly as sure as Rick Warren. While Warren assures us that our time on earth matters eternally, Solomon laments here that our days are spent under the sun, unhappy, vanity, striving after wind. It's hevel is the word we've been coming back to. Dominates 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Hevel, it's, it's like smoke. It's, you can't grab it. It's not solid, and it's fleeting. It's so temporary, temporal. While Warren calls us Hall of Famers on God's list when we're working for him, Solomon wonders what gain has the worker from any of his toil. What, what does it profit a man to spin our wheels on this hamster wheel of life, working, 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 and then what? We die. Does our work really make any lasting difference? And in stark contrast to Warren's encouragement here about life's hopefulness and purposefulness, Solomon grieves the fact that man has no advantage over the beasts. For as one dies, so dies the other, and all is meaningless. According to Solomon, the pursuit of purpose-driven life is hevel. It's, it's vapor. It's smoke. In fact, Pastor Thad suggested that I light my co- copy of Purpose-Driven Life on fire this morning. It's a powerful visual demonstration. Send it up in smoke for you to remember. Um, but I opted not to set off the sprinkler system on you. Uh, But Solomon's point remains here that so often life's purpose seems to escape us here under the sun. And that brings us to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do and want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one of those at the info bar as well. You can head back there now and grab one. Um, But as you do, let me offer a quick outline of Solomon's sermon here. Remember, Ecclesiastes is one long sermon from Solomon and 
chapter 3 in particular, he's got a three-part, three-point sermon. Remember, so far he has searched for meaning but found none in work, nature, knowledge, progress, legacy, wisdom in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, he turned to whoopee and wealth before re-examining wisdom and work, found them all lacking as well. And this morning, Solomon is going to explore three additional uh, endeavors in the hope of finding purpose, lasting meaning. And once again, he's going to expose a problem with each of these three undertakings, a reason why each of them seems to be just more hevel, more smoke. But this time, Solomon's going to attempt to actually resolve the problem, to clear away the smoke and get clarity on life's purpose. But what he's going to discover is that every time he solves one problem, it's going to lead him to yet another, even bigger problem with his next proposed pursuit of purpose. And since that overview is probably as clear as smoke, trying not to prematurely give away uh, our three main bullet points in the outline, um, let's just dive in and see them together. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 3? decided not to go all the way into chapter 4. We'll save that for next week. So we'll just read chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them they might see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. 
they all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is heaven. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, your perfect, inspired, inerrant word. God, we know, we trust that every part of it is useful for our teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, that we may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So, Father, even these difficult, difficult passages, words, hard to hear, hard to read, hard to wrestle with. We can thank you for them this morning because we know Solomon is giving voice to some of the deep cries of our own hearts, the questions, the wrestlings of our own hearts. Is this really all there is to life? These brief 70, 80, 90 years and then gone. There's got to be more. Father, thank you for your word, that though the grass withers, the flowers fade, your word endures forever, that we know that there is eternity. You've put eternity in our hearts. There is real, lasting, non-hevel stuff in this world, and it's your word. And it's the word made flesh, Jesus, for us. The only sure and steady foundation the rock on which we can build our lives in a world full of sinking sand, which you use even this difficult passage this morning to expose the world for the sinking sand that it is, but more importantly, to show us Jesus. Would you help us to see Jesus this morning? Sure and steady anchor for our hope. We pray for his glory and in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Point number one, Solomon, is that our time is hevel. Our time is hevel. Now, a show of hands, how many of you were singing along as we read our way through verses one through eight there? You had the tune, down, down, down. You, you were saying to everything, turn, turn. Okay, I need you to forget the birds this morning because that famous 60s tune, does not at all reflect Solomon's mood here in the text. As Jonathan Aiken explains, the upbeat tune of Turn, 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 number one hit single, 1965, it comforts people. It comforts us to think, you know, it doesn't matter how bad things get, good times are coming. Things will turn around soon enough, but that is not Solomon's point here. Solomon is not celebrating all of life's varying seasons because in each one of these 14 contrasting pairings that he lists here, one of them is clearly a time, a season that Solomon wishes and that we should wish 
did not exist at all. Just look at his list. Solomon is not happy about the fact that there's a time to die, that there's a time to kill, a time to weep, to mourn. It's not good news yet. Moreover, as Aiken explains, this poem reveals the great absurdity of life because each activity cancels the other out. There are 14 pluses and 14 minuses here on his list. Any math whizzes in here? Was that equal? Zero. Big fat zero. Every birth ends in death. Every planted crop eventually gets plucked up. Every building inevitably gets condemned one day, and every peace gives way to another war. Nothing is gained in this giant hamster wheel called life. Net zero. There's tons of activity, but zero progress. And because our time here under the sun is heavily, then so too, number two, is our toil. Our toil, our work, is heavily as well. In verse 9, Solomon asks, what gain has the worker from his toil? What progress do we make? What profit is it to work? Why bother getting out of bed? Now, we're going to come back to point number one in just a minute, but let's try and follow his train of thought here. If every positive action has its equal and opposite negative reaction, then that, that negates it. If every birth ends in death, if everything built eventually gets torn down, then why bother? Why bother having babies if they're just going to die? Why bother building, you know, Boeing planes if they're just going to rust and, 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 and crash. And logically, all of our effort, our toil, our attempts, I didn't mean that as a slam on Boeing, sorry. Still too soon. Uh, if all of our effort, our toil, our, our attempts to make any progress in life, actually to actually advance things here under the sun, if it's all in vain, if it's all hevel, why bother? And speaking of nothing new under the sun, even Solomon's mind here is starting to go in circles, noticing a pattern in these first three chapters. He's already lamented the vanity of work. Twice now, remember, in chapter 1, he asked the exact same question that he does here in verse 9. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all his toil? And then again in chapter 2, he said, what has a man from all the toil with which he toils under the sun? And so Solomon's brain seems to be stuck on the hamster wheel. But then he has this breakthrough. Here in verse 11, first we need to see verse 10, because he makes another identical observation back to chapter 1. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then we expect him to call it what? Hevel just like everything else, just like he did back in chapter 1 when he said it's an unhappy business that God gave us to be busy with. It's all hevel. But watch what he says here instead in, verse, in chapter 3 now, verse 11. He, instead, he says, God has made everything what? Beautiful in its time. Why the change? What happened between chapter 1 and when he repeats it here in chapter 3? Again, math whizzes, what's between 1 Three, chapter 2. Last week, right? Remember Solomon's conclusion, if you were here with us last week, where he finally celebrated the one thing, the only thing, that's not 
hevel in this world. If you remember last week's conclusion to the sermon, it's worship, assigning God the worth, the ultimate worth that he alone deserves. Then and only then does everything else in this life under the sun find its meaning and purpose and joy in him. When we accept that everything under the sun, quote, is from the hand of God, chapter 2, verse 24, when we learn to receive money and sex and wisdom and work for what they really are, gifts, good gifts, but that are intended to point us back to the giver, to God, who alone is the source of all meaning and joy. When we find our satisfaction and our hope in him, then all of a sudden he makes, quote, everything else beautiful in its time as well. Well, that's good. That solves problem number one. So here is Solomon's train of thought, his internal debate. Summarize, first 11 verses, verses 1 through 10. Problem, if everything we do in life just gets undone, then what's the point? And here's what he says in verse 11. His answer, solution, the point is to have done it. The beauty is in the doing. As Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, it's not about the destination, it's about what? The journey. You've heard that? Solomon is starting to sound like a hippie. That's probably why the birds covered him. In any case, now we can back up. Now we back up and we revisit Solomon's lyrics from verses 1 through 8 here from a new perspective. Yes, in an under-the-sun world devoid of God, then death and killing and weeping and mourning, it's all depressing hevel. But with God in the picture, Solomon says, suddenly we begin to discover new beauty in life, even in the hard, difficult, formerly ugly parts of life. Everyone sees the beauty in birth, right? Being there in the, the delivery room, watching my daughter be born was the single greatest, most transcendent moment of my entire life. But now, Solomon says, we can also find the beauty in the, the other room across the hospital as someone is passing from this life in death. Like, I love officiating weddings, you know, witnessing, officiating, sanctioning. You know, the birth of a new marriage is a beautiful thing. But I'll tell you, there is nothing more beautiful than a funeral. As long as God is in the picture, that is the key. You take him out and it's hevel. Death is an atrocity. But when you know, friends, the one who conquered death, who rose from the grave to free us from the power of death, to raise us to new, eternal life in him, with him, then you know that death is just a momentary passageway. It's just a quick door that you walk through that separates the room that you're leaving, the heaven-filled life under the sun that you now leave behind you from the heavenly life with the sun, your Savior that now lies before you where there is goodness and life and joy forevermore. Friends, in Christ's resurrection, God has made even death beautiful in its own time. When the time comes, when your time comes, will your death be beautiful? It depends. Is God in it? 
It's Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Is he your Lord and Savior? If he's not, then now, right now, would be a good time, great, beautiful time for you to turn, turn, turn from your sin and to trust, trust, trust in Jesus and be saved. Because with God in the picture, verse 2, both the time to plant as well as the time to pluck up, become beautiful. Philip Ryken explains in the Old Testament these verbs most often used to describe God's relationship with his people. God planted his people as a fruitful vineyard. See Isaiah 5, verse 1, but then when they turned against him in rebellion, God said, I dig up the vine, and he sent his people away into captivity and exile, Isaiah 5, 5. Again here with God, it's all beautiful. It's beautiful that God made his covenant promises to Abraham, that God called, planted, established a people, Israel. But it's even more beautiful that God has allowed this partial hardening over Israel's heart, Romans 11, so that God might pluck them up so he can graft us in, all the Gentiles in the room, now can get included in God's covenant promises, his new and even better covenant, his eternal life in Christ can now be ours too. Praise God. And if we had time, if time wasn't so fleeting, Hevel, then we could just walk through each one of these 14 pairings here in verses 1 through 8 and appreciate God's redemptive power to bring beauty from ashes, to turn good from evil with every single one of them. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. It's a time to take your dog to the vet to get him the meds he needs to get better. And then there's a time to take your dog to the vet to put him down. And Solomon says in a, in a weirdly, sadly, beautiful way, it's beautiful in its own time, because we all know all dogs go to heaven. Right? It's a time to break down and a time to build up. How many of y'all were here in town in 2005 when Old Bush Stadium came down? Anybody remember demolition, right? Bush Memorial. Was it sad? Anybody shed a tear? Be honest. Yep, couple. I knew you would, Eric. But was it also beautiful? You know, they built new Bush Stadium, bigger and better, right on top of it. You can't build new Bush without tearing down old Bush. You can't seek if you don't lose. You can't sow if you don't tear. There's no such thing as love without hate, and there's no such thing as peace without war. And God has made all of it beautiful in its time, Solomon says. But that leads Solomon here to another problem now. He may have solved the problem of time's heaviness by appealing to a timeless, infinite God, an eternal God, the only one above the sun who brings everything else here under the sun, its meaning and beauty. But now that raises problem number two, namely, that now I just want to get above the sun. I want you to acknowledge all the hevel down here. And that there's, but there's a place up there, out there, that's perfect, uncontaminated by Hevel, filled with a God who's perfect, no trace of Hevel. As we, as we sang earlier in, in the song Christ Our Glory already, we long for a country where that sin is not stained. That just leaves me wanting to be there with him instead of here. We keep reading in verse 11. Solomon says, yes, God has made everything beautiful in its time, but... Also, we read, he has put eternity into man's heart. Problem number two, we long 
for eternity. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And we hear that and think, what a beautiful idea. And Solomon hears that and thinks, yeah, but it's also incredibly frustrating isn't it, to be made for another world? Because now I long to be in that world that I was made for. And that makes me a foreigner here. I'm an alien. I'm a stranger in exile, as Hebrews eleven thirteen calls us. And Solomon cries, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I just feel really homesick. I want to go home. God has put eternity in our hearts, in all of our hearts, by the way. There's no such thing as a real atheist, according to the Bible. God says in Romans 1, he's made it just way too obvious in creation that he exists. Uh, it's not possible to watch your child be born and to not believe in a God. But Solomon tells us more here that deep down, we all want there to be a God too. Not just that we believe it, but we want there to be a God. Or at least we want there to be something that's eternal. Something that lasts beyond all of this hevel that's passing away, everything else is temporary. God has put eternity in our hearts and try as we may, try as the atheist may to expel it with pseudoscientific arguments. Try as you may to avoid it by filling your heart with, with hevel, all the hevel of this world. Some of us are, are so distracted by all the shiny objects around us here that we barely spare a thought for life above the sun for eternity. So we try and suppress it and avoid it and ignore it, but Solomon says you can't avoid it forever. Eternity's in there. It's in you. And it will haunt you until you deal with it. In divinity school, my New Testament professor was an atheist Orthodox Jew, which is a story for another time. She knew more about Jesus than anyone I've ever met. Sadly, she didn't know Jesus. But I will never forget the story that she told her class about sitting with her mother in her last moments before death. So she was sitting there on her deathbed, holding her mom's hand, crying, and her mom said, AJ, I'm scared. What's going to happen to me? And my professor looked down at her mother, and she said, Mom, you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to see Dad. It's going to be perfect. And her mom took a few more breaths, and then she died. And my professor wept. She left the room. And after some time had passed, so that it wasn't too insensitive, my professor's husband, who had also been in the room with them, confronted her, asked her about it. He said, hey, what was that? just told your mom she's going to heaven you don't believe in heaven she said when I looked into my dying mother's eyes and I said it in that moment I believed it because God has put eternity in man's heart yet 
Continuing verse 11 now. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. We can't even figure out beginning to end, much less eternity. Solomon says, consider this. There are at least four different theories on what God did at the beginning. Did an Ask the Pastor uh, episode about this. Shout out to our podcast, episode 25, I think it was, two and a half years ago now. Uh, but there's young earth creationism. Earth is 6,000 years old. There's uh, old earth creationism. Earth is some 4 billion years old. There's theistic evolution. God used the Big Bang and evolution to create everything. And, of course, there's Darwinian materialism, which posits no God at all. It just kind of happened. Yay, universe. And Solomon says, don't even get me started on the end. Your guesses for how it's all going to end, dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, partial preterism, that's just the Christian theories. So Solomon says, here we are, and I thought I'd give you a visual to help illustrate this. Um, it might be difficult because some of the spots, we need to clean the screen up here. But do you see uh, the white line there in the middle? Tiny, you've got to really squint. The white line in the center of the screen. You see it? No, Okay. Can we zoom in, Josh? I thought I'd zoom in. This is zoomed in like a trillion billion times now. That's zoomed in for you. Do you see it now, the white line? Okay, that is the entire history of the universe on the line, beginning and end. We know that even, you know, secular scientists now all agree the universe had a distinct, it's not eternal, it's not infinite, it, didn't, it had a distinct beginning. We disagree on whether or not it'll go on forever or not. The Bible is clear. It will have a distinct end. And so that's it. That's the beginning. Of, that's the entire history of the universe. Now, do you, can you squint and see the little yellow dot right on the line, the middle? You see it? No? That's because that's your life. That's the 70, 80, 90 years that you have on the grand history timeline of the universe. Your entire life is a blip on the radar screen of eternity and even of defined history. So, here's Solomon's point. If you can't even, from your vantage point, your little yellow dot, there's not actually a yellow dot, but let's, you know, if it's microscopic, because that's how big we are, um, if you can't even see the beginning or the end from your yellow dot, if you can't even make sense of the beginning from the end in this universe, how much less so can you make sense of the God who's outside of the universe? Remember, because God, God created time and space and the universe, right? So God is the whole screen, and he can't even be contained by the screen, how much less can you understand the infinite, eternal God who created it all? Solomon says, fat chance. And so here's his conclusion in verse 12. His solution to problem number two, this, this idea that we have eternity in our hearts, that we want to be able to make sense uh, of life. Uh, I started last week with you know, that, that quote from, uh, uh, what was it? The history of, thank you, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I haven't actually seen it. It's just a good illustration. But, you know, the, the, the illustration about we, we, we all want to know the answer to the, the, the question of life and 
the universe and everything in it. Here's Solomon's answer. You've got eternity in your heart. You want to make sense of it, but he said, verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as you live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, take pleasure in all your toil. This is God's gift to man. Translation, just enjoy your little blip. Just, just enjoy your little blip. Because listen, the, the timeline is way too big for you. And the God who exists outside the timeline and created that little, t- he's way too big for you. So just enjoy your little blip. And while you're at it, do good. Do good. Ephesians 2.10 says that's why God put you here. You're his workmanship created for good works in Christ. So it's our duty to do good. That's why he put us on the timeline. And Solomon adds, it's also our delight. Let's find delight. He says, take pleasure in your toil. Take pleasure, joy in doing good and doing God's work, for this is God's gift to man. And then Solomon concludes, point number two here, by further emphasizing the difference between God's vastness and our blipness. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God is eternal, and he is eternally sovereign. It's just a fancy theological word that means God is in charge. As God himself declares in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet even done. I'm the only one who sees it all, and my counsel shall stand. My will is what determines the timeline and everything, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is sovereign, and our right response to God's sovereignty, verse 14, Solomon says, is to fear him. God has done all this so that people fear before him. Psalm 33, 8 defines it this way. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let them stand in awe of him. The fear of the Lord is awe. It's respect. It's reverence. As you realize his bigness and your smallness. And yes, even a little trembling. When you realize that the only reason that giant oak tree in your front yard has not come crashing down on your daughter's bedroom and killed her is because God holds it in place. Even as I wrote this point, I was working on this sermon last night, writing this section, I get a text from one of our members here, Daniel Sakala, who informed me, Pastor Will, I was just in a terrible accident this week. I got blindsided by someone who ran a light. He flipped and totaled my car. People who pulled me out of my sunroof couldn't believe I walked away without a scratch. And friends, the only reason that Daniel is still alive today The only reason that you are still alive today is because God has sovereignly ordained it. Because God is sovereignly watching over every moment of your life and protecting you in ways you don't even realize. And that ought to make us fear him in a healthy way, stand in awe of him, worship him. When we consider that whatever he does, verse 14, endures forever. That includes you, by the way. God did you. He created you. You endure forever, whether you like it or not. And you're going to either like it a lot or not like it a lot. But you will endure forever, verse 14. 
Everything he does endures forever. While whatever we do, verse 15 now, is hevel. That which is, has already been. Here's what I add to the equation. Nothing. Uh, That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. But watch this now. He says, but God, verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. Or your Bible might alert you that the Hebrew participle here literally translates what has been pursued. God seeks what has been pursued. In other words, what's been pursued? Well, Solomon's already told us. It's eternity, right? That's what we're all pursuing. That's what we're all after. We're all desiring and longing for and pursuing eternity with him. And Solomon assures us here, God's after the same thing. God's after, God seeks what you're pursuing, eternity with you. And guess what? He stepped off his throne in heaven to make it possible. Jesus said he'll leave the 99 to come hunt you down and make it possible. Eternity with you. God wants it. Praise God. Now, it would be really great if Solomon would just end things right there, wouldn't it? Because that's an encouraging note, an encouraging word. God seeks what we're all pursuing. He's seeking eternity with us too. Beautiful. But instead, Solomon opens up a whole other can of worms. This is a, a, a world, a universe of worms. In verse 16, quick recap, verses 1 through 10, problem number 1. Time is hevel, what's the point? Solution number 1, just enjoy it while you can. Problem number 2, verse 11, but I want to live for more than just this life. I want to believe that life is about more than just these 70, 80, 90 years that we have here. It's got to be about more than that. I've got eternity on my heart. Solution number two, yeah, but you can't handle eternity. It's like you can't handle the truth. You can't handle eternity. Eternity is infinitely out of your pay grade. You need to leave eternity to God. Leave eternity in his more than capable, sovereign hands, and you just enjoy your little blip. Eat, drink, and enjoy your heaven-filled toil while you still can. But here comes problem number three here, and this is the biggest problem. Problem three starts in verse 16. It's going gonna, it's gonna to morph, but he starts in verse 16 with this. Psalmist says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was what? Wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon says, I was trying to just enjoy my my heaven-filled little blip. I was trying to enjoy it, but I couldn't help but notice all the evil, all the injustice, all the wickedness all over the place here under the sun. And it's driving me crazy. Because just like God has put eternity in all our hearts, God's put justice in our hearts too. You're made in God's image, and part of that longing for justice, you long for justice to be done, for wrongs to be righted, don't you? Solomon says, that's a good longing for eternity, for justice. But how does he comfort himself then? Verse 17, what's his solution to this problem of this longing for justice? Verse 17, I said in my heart, I comforted myself with this thought, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Translation, there may be a time 
for helping and for hurting here under the sun. But Solomon says above the sun, there's also going to be a time for rewarding and for punishing. Eternal justice must be done. And he reassures himself later in this very same book, Ecclesiastes, last verse of the book, spoiler alert, chapter 12, Here's how it's going to end. He says, God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. That's how he comforts himself. This hope, eternal justice and judgment. But, but, this raises another problem, bigger problem, which is that we may never see that justice in this lifetime, right? Solomon's going to lament this couple chapters from now. It says, let's talk about this hevel, the fact that I, I've seen a wicked man prosper, get rich, live it up, and I've seen righteous men die young. What is that? That's, that's hevel. That's a problem for him. He says, that we may never see justice in this lifetime, this side of eternity, under this sun. Verse 18, so I said in my heart that God is testing us that we may see that we are but beast. In other words, he says, we're all going to die, and God is testing us to see whether or not we truly trust in his eternal, sovereign timing and judgment. Will we leave judgment to God, even if it means that we don't get to see those wrongs get righted on this side of the grave? Do we trust him enough? Do we trust in, in God's eternality and his justice enough to wait for that hope? But wait a minute. That problem just raises the far bigger problem for Solomon and for all of us. The problem of death itself. If we've got to wait until after death, the afterlife, to get justice... That, that, let's just zoom out to the, the biggest problem of all now. The afterlife. And forget about justice beyond the grave. How sure can we be that there's any hope beyond the grave? This is our third and final bullet point here. Number three, your bulletins, that our telos is hevel. Telos is the Greek word for end, finish line. How does a story end? Is there another chapter after death, an encore? Solomon's not sure. He confesses, I'm not so sure. Verses 19 through 22, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. He says, the only thing I'm really sure of is we end up just as dead as the dogs. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast. No advantage, for all is hevel. We're all fleeting, temporary. All go to one place, i.e., the grave, not heaven. Dogs don't actually go to heaven. No, we don't all go to, and we definitely don't all go to heaven. We all go to the grave. That's the one place we all go, that we all have one place in common. That's the grave, the dust. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Ashes to ashes, and what? Dust to dust. This is the verse. And verse 21, and, know, and who knows whether the spirit of man 
goes upward, yay, while the spirit of beasts goes down into the earth. We know what happens to the beasts. But who knows whether we're any different. Solomon asked, are you sure? Are you sure we're so different? You sure we don't just die and turn into worm food like every other animal around here? How sure? How sure are you? And how can you be sure after all? I mean, who knows? Verse 21, who really knows? Who is to say? No one knows for sure, do they? I mean, maybe 90 minutes in heaven and, you know, there's the, there's the books, but can you even trust them, right? Who knows? Who has been there and come back and can tell us for sure? And that's where Solomon leaves us. That's where he leaves us. Actually, he's going to draw one last conclusion in verse 22. He says, so I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now he's back to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Except now he doesn't sound too happy about it, does he? So he ends with this unsolved problem. He's had three problems, two answers. Here's his, his last problem he doesn't know how to solve. It's the problem of the absolute certainty of death but the utter uncertainty about what happens after, life after death. Verse 22, who can bring man to see what will be after him? Who can take me on a tour of the afterlife so I know for certain? And Solomon's question would remain mostly unanswered for a thousand years. Yes, there were promises of the hope of the afterlife. Job had faith in the promise. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end I shall see God. David had faith in the promise. Psalm 1610, you will not abandon me to the grave. Psalm 4915, God will ransom my soul from the power of death. Even Solomon You'll be happy to know even Solomon came around in the end, the end of Ecclesiastes, again, spoiler alert, he's going to snap out of his existential funk long enough to declare the dust returns to the earth as it was. Ashes to ashes, dust is dust, but he says we're more than dust. He says because the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Chapter 12, verse 7. They all trusted in God's promise of the hope of life after death, but that's all it was for them. It was a promise. And so they had faith in God's promise, but it would take almost a thousand years for that faith to be turned to sight. When a bunch of people, believers and, believe, and unbelievers, by the way, all huddled around an occupied tomb and they listen to a man announce, I am the resurrection and the life. And then they watched him turn to a lifeless corpse inside that tomb and order him, Lazarus, get up. And he did. And then a couple weeks later, that same man would find himself inside the tomb after being brutally tortured crucified unjustly and this time it was his father it was God himself who would give the order Jesus get up 
did. And now, friends, 2,000 years later, though we once again may not see, faith was turned to sight, and now it's turned back to faith. Christ commands our faith still today. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he asked, do you believe this? How about you this morning? Do you believe it? Do you believe him? Do you believe in him, in Jesus? Your only hope for life after death. I want to leave you with three quick takeaways, one for each of Solomon's points here is Hevel's. Again, raise three problems, only answer two of them. So let me offer you, remind you of his solutions, offer you a third and final most important takeaway answer. Do you want to know that your time here under the sun is filled with purpose? Then trust God's promise to make everything beautiful in its time and to work all things together for our good. If you love him, are called by him, belong to him. Number two, do you want to know that all your toil, your work, isn't for naught, that it's filled with purpose? Well, then trust in God's sovereignty. God is in charge, friends, and that's really good news for control freaks like you and me because it means you and I don't have to be. Like, that is a burden far too big for our shoulders to be in charge And so we need to keep our toiling in perspective. God is sovereign. We we get to just be joyful and do good for as long as we live here under the sun, which in the grand scheme of eternity is a blip. Enjoy your blip. And finally, but most importantly of all, the question he didn't answer, do you need to know, not just want, do you need to know that your telos, your end, your finish line, the last chapter of your story is filled with purpose, that there's more to your life than these 70, 80, 90 heaven-filled years under the sun, that death isn't a period, it's just a comma, that death doesn't get the final word in your life. Do you need to believe it this morning and trust in God's Son? Trust in Jesus, our only hope for life beyond the grave.